Welcome back to Supreme Myths, and this is a first for Supreme Myths. Uh, I've been doing this now for a couple years and decided it was well past time to have one of my colleagues on my podcast, which I have not done yet. So I am so pleased today to have as my guest on Supreme Myths, Professor Anthony Kreiss, who has an undergraduate degree from Chapel Hill, a law degree from Washington and Lee, a PhD from the University of Georgia in political scientist. He is the author of numerous, numerous articles. He also has a mega social media presence. And a little bit of a personal note, uh, we both used to go to this Loyola Con Law Conference when, when Anthony was at Chicago Kent, and I heard him speak for the first time. And when that happened, I knew he... Anthony does not know this story. Uh, I knew he was visiting at, at, at Kent, and I think in his first year maybe or second. And I said, I want that guy. <laughs> and someday I'm getting that guy from my faculty. And then, thank God, a few years later it happened. Anthony, welcome to Supreme Mips. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you nabbed me because it's good to be back in, in Georgia. Well, we've been so happy to have you back. All right. One of the reasons I wanted you on this week is uh, you just wrote a uh, – I'm, I'm going to call it a blog post. But – I want the audience to understand that there are blog posts and there are blog posts. And as someone who has written over 400 of them over the last five years, I can tell the audience that some blog posts are more important than others. And some blog posts are as important as articles and essays you might read in law reviews. Certainly, there's a wide variation. But I don't want to denigrate the value of what you wrote by some people thinking, ah, oh, it's just a blog post. It's not just a blog post. It was timely, it was important, and it was published in the Harvard Law Review blog, which is a nice thing. Um, and it's called Prison Gates at the State Line. What a great title. By the way, all your titles are great. Prison Gates at the State Line. What is this blog post about, and why is it important now? Well, so uh, there's a lot of pernicious legislation that's been going around state legislatures in the last few months. Um, and one of the things that garnered a little bit of news attention in the last few weeks in particular has been a measure out of Missouri and a measure that is uh, out of Idaho, which targeted in some way, shape or form uh, individuals and individuals helping other individuals who wanted to obtain lawful services outside their state borders. So in the Missouri case, it was about abortion. And in Idaho, it was about gender-affirming health care for transgender minors. Now, the way that these proposals would have worked um, you know, are slightly different. The Missouri measure basically was styled after the Texas law, uh, SB 8, which everybody recalls, right, was the law that basically gave individuals a private right of action to sue if a woman or someone helped a woman obtain uh, a, a, an abortion right. inconsistent with the, the they, Texas statute. They couldn't sue the woman, right, just someone who helped the woman, I think. Yeah, so so the the similar measure was brought to Missouri, okay. which basically said that if anybody helped uh, or assisted a woman leave Missouri for the purposes of, of obtaining an unlawful abortion, that they could also face a private civil suit um, in Missouri. So in other words, um, right, a woman couldn't be directly burdened or directly penalized for going across state lines to get an abortion she could not otherwise get in Missouri. But if you helped her, uh, you could be slapped with a civil suit by uh, you know any number uh, of interested parties. Idaho also had something kind of similar. Um, you know, the Idaho measure was a little bit different because what they had basically done was categorize transgender, gender-affirming health care as a form of general mutilation. And partially what they did was, tech, was uh, uh, criminalize some forms of transgender surgical care, but, um, you know, for folks who would leave out of state. But the, the other thing that's interesting about Idaho, and this is true of other states, um, there's a number of states that have kind of these criminal long arm statutes where they say, you know, if you in any way, shape or form help aid, abet, you know, plan, uh, you know, something that's criminal in the state of Idaho. And, uh, you know, even if part of that crime plays out extraterritorially, you might still be subject to criminal prosecution for that. And and so there's some right. There's some question there. Um, you know how you know how much transgender minor care health care would be criminalized for you know out of state purposes. But the bottom line is this: both these measures, in some degree, would prohibit or inhibit individuals from helping people obtain lawful health care services out of state. Um, let, and, me, and let, I, let me interrupt you for one second, Anthony, just just so that we 
the audience understands where we're going on this, and I'm a little confused too. Yeah. Could Georgia pass a law saying it's illegal to rob banks? Yes. Or illegal to commit arson or whatever, crimes that we recognize as crimes. And then say it's illegal to do it in this state and it's illegal to leave this state with the intent to commit this crime elsewhere and then committing the crime elsewhere. Is that something Georgia can do? I don't know the answer. I don't actually, I don't think we, any of us really do. Okay. Uh, but, but here's part of the reason, right? Part of the reason for that is because we have, I mean, we overcriminalize everything, yes. right? Yes. Um, but, you know, so many of the, the crimes in Georgia are not, you know, there, there are things that are also crimes in South Carolina right. and by and large in Illinois. And we have federal statutes that criminalize those kind of interstate transactions. And so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say a moot point, but, it, you know, essentially it's a moot point because right. they're going to get prosecuted somewhere. Right. Whereas here we're seeing states potentially, you know, either directly trying to burden or or somehow otherwise potentially uh, criminalize um, individuals helping people obtain lawful services in other states. So, you know, maybe the most, you know, akin thing that I, that I could think of is Georgia saying, you know, it's unlawful to plan to go to Colorado uh, to buy marijuana. Um, you know, even yes. if you buy it, consume it completely in marijuana uh, in, in Colorado, right? Your travel plan somehow, yes. um, you know, in, you know, uh, inculcates you in, in the crime. So, um, you know, that might be the most similar thing that people could probably see play out. But the the, the thing is, so few things I think in society are vote are are both highly salient issues. And unlikely to be criminalized universally, right, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Right. And that's what we're kind of seeing here play out. That, that makes total sense to me. I was thinking when you were saying that, this is a, a minor tangent. I don't want to throw us off, but Georgia's about to pass a law. I mean, they passed it. The governor has to sign it. He will. Uh, prohibiting the teaching of divisive topics in, in K through 12. And I was wondering, I was thinking to myself, I mean, that law is going to be struck down as unconstitutionally vague, probably. But before it is, I was wondering, could, is it would it be illegal for Georgia to say, if you're a teacher, you can't go give a lecture someplace else, if you're a high school teacher, you can't go give a lecture someplace else on divisive topics. That seems insane to me. But the reason it's insane to me is because I think the underlying conduct is constitutionally protected. Is part of your thesis here only dealing uh, – so I think that when, when, when it's illegal everywhere, we might have some complicated jurisdictional issues. I don't want to go into those. But where it's legal somewhere – or protected somewhere. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And, and, and so I think what made me write this piece um, is, is right, two things. One is, you know, if the Supreme Court rolls back abortion rights, right, we, we just kind of throw out, you know, Roe and Casey and, and you know, start somewhere else. Um, you know, there might be, I think, an, a temptation by many states to criminalize as much abortion proceed, you know, practices and, and healthcare as they can, and then also try to fence their right their citizens in to to keep them or to try to dissuade them from leaving the state to to um, right you know. So, for example, in the Missouri situation, Illinois is going to have much more liberal sure. abortion laws than than Missouri, and so you know I think there's a real temptation there to fence their residents in, and I think with transgender healthcare in particular for for minors. Um, I, I'm not certain where this court or the federal courts more broadly are likely to go. Um, you know, is there a constitutional right to, you know, to, to, to secure gender affirming health care for minors? Um, you know, I would say absolutely yes, because that's consistent with my outlook on the world in terms of my view on LGBTQ rights sure. and my understanding of right the practice and the st standards of medical care and all the rest. But there are a lot of other people who, you know, and legislators in Idaho, for example, feel this way that, no, that's actually, uh, you know, a form of child abuse. And, you know, we've seen folks in Texas take that position, too. Now, that could also mean that there will be judges who will see eye to eye with legislators and, you know, other elected officials like those in Idaho and Texas and will not see things like I do. And and so that's really what kind of gave rise to my decision or my my motivation to write this is that, you know, what happens if abortion or gender affirming health care for minors isn't deemed right a, a fundamental constitutional right or isn't protected by the Constitution somehow through the federal judiciary? And then maybe states are, are left with this opportunity to try to fence their, their residents in and keep them from, from obtaining those 
um, services lawfully in other neighboring states. And if I read your piece correctly, I, I think what you're suggesting um, is there is a constitutional right here to what exactly? Travel between and among the states and live according to the rules of the state you're traveling to? Yeah, so so I think, right, the key here is neither of these laws in any way, shape, or form would directly criminalize or subject uh, to liability the person trying to receive, right, the service. It would right. be, it's it's hurting, or, or I should say it's, it's targeting, um, right, friends, neighbors, relatives, you know, medical professionals, any, anyone who's assisting. Um, and so I, I wanted to bring at least to, to some degree uh, to folks' attention that, you know, there are cases in the canon, right, where we talk about the right to travel that really do involve associative travel, right, that, that they really do implicate um, a relationship with other people. We, you know, I always have forget. I don't know why, but I always loved Edwards versus California. Um, you know, it's just, I just think Tell it's the a audience what that is because there are a lot of non-lawyers listening to this. Yeah, so Edwards versus California essentially, you know, kind of not to get too far in the weeds, but, um, you know, there was a, a, a guy in California. He had some relatives in, in Texas, um, you know, who were not doing so great during uh, the Great Depression, Dust Bowl, you know, period. Um, you know, he tries to go to Texas. Uh, to, with the aim to bring his family, you know, his relatives back to, to California, discovers that, you know, the, the guy that he's bringing back is like 20 bucks to his name um, and, and really has no source of income, has no savings whatsoever, um, and, you know, is indigent. Uh, California has a law that says it's a criminal act to knowingly bring an indigent person from out of state into California. Um, and, you know, he does it anyway and gets charged for, for doing so. Um, you know, there, right, the, the, the case in California versus Edwards was focused on, right, the guy who's helping, right, the family member who's helping right. his relative in Texas try to get his, you know, back on his feet, try to pro provide him with some support. It's not about the actual guys, you know, in Texas's right to travel per se, although very much so implicated. But, you know, it's really a case about the California resident. Um, another case I bring up is, of course, the the, the Loving versus Virginia case, sure. right? Where, um, you know, Fred and Mildred Loving get prosecuted. The best named plaintiffs in American history. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a you know kind yeah. of a well, I guess them and um, you know, well, there was an opportunity for a was it Love versus Kentucky in the you, marriage cases. Yeah, and then they, yeah. <laughs> we didn't get there. Um, so so that was a missed opportunity, right? Yes. But, um, you know, the Lovings you know, traveled to D.C. Um, in violation of Virginia state law, which says it was unlawful to, to leave the state and get, you know, to obtain an interracial marriage um, with the intent of coming back and living as a married couple. Um, you know, of course, there, the, the underlying right, the fundamental right to marry, uh, the equal protection you know, consequent or the equal protection uh, guarantees of the 14th Amendment were, were both implicated. And so, you know, this, you know, the Commonwealth of Virginia had to protect their right to marry as, you know, as a general matter. And so the right to travel issue kind of, um, you right. know, wasn't needed to be or, you know, was it dispositive in the case outcome. But there, you know, that that to me also suggests something we should think about, right? Was their right to travel to Washington, D.C. to get married lawfully there and return, was that not also somewhat protected somehow? Um, and I think if we kind of think of these cases together, the answer should be yes, that, that there is an associative right to travel, um, that part of this is a just a fundamental part of our national citizenship, and states have to, to uh, you know, respect that. So let me ask you a couple questions about this. And audience alert, this may get a little bit theoretical in a second, but we'll, 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 we'll manage it. Um, when I read your piece, which really made me think, which is, you know, no matter whether I agree or disagree, it doesn't matter. It's a great, interesting, important, and very timely piece. Um, so if the underlying right is constitutionally protected. So as of today, in theory, in America, not in Texas, there is a constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy. I mean, there still is in Texas, theoretically. Um, if, if, the, if the travel restrictions burdens a fundamental right, and if we believe in fundamental rights, 
then do we need this separate doctrine? Can't we just say it's a, so I think that's what's happening in loving. I think the court said there's a right to interracial marriage and you can't burden that right in any in any way other without a compelling state interest and narrowly tailoring. Um, so the, 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 the travel burden is a subsidiary of the constitutional right. That's an easier case, than, I think, than, what you're tr- than if what you're trying to do is not constitutionally protected. It's just not illegal in the state you're going to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's absolutely right. I, you know, frankly, right, if, if, if the gender-affirming health care for minors question wasn't a truly open one. Right. And if the, you know, if the abortion right um, isn't, wasn't in jeopardy, I would have nothing to write. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. like this, right? Okay. this, I don't think this would be a post whatsoever. Um, right. In a, as you said, in a very similar way that it would be necessary to resolve uh, the Loving's claims right. in, in against Virginia. Um, you know, I use I use the Loving case. I think for to me to to illustrate something that's that's deeply illiberal about these measures to me, which is you know, oftentimes we have talked about the right to travel because states have wanted to fence people out, right. and that's very. I mean, I think that that's bad, right? Like whether you're fencing people out because. You know, you you have a really you know you're stigmatizing poverty, or because it's you know anti-immigrant or you know whatever, um, right? That's that's bad. And, and but, the Dormant Commerce Clause tells us you can't fence businesses out. You just can't do it. Right. It's it's unconstitutional. And and so like that that's a problem. But here I think what's different is you know there are the states may well be thinking about ways to fence their own people in, or right. at least to make it harder for their own people to leave. And that's where I think the parallel to loving comes in, not so much doctrinally in kind of a traditional right legal analysis sense, but in a in a kind of a broader sense where I, I would hope that that example would bring people to pause and think, you know, that's a dangerous place to go, right? That is not an era um, to which we should want to return where the state is using social policy in such a way um, to coercively keep people in to in order to advance, um, you know, their own sense of, of, you know, morality, social policy, um, or what they want people to do. And that's acutely problematic, right, in these particular moments um, that we're talking about with abortion and transgender health care, when they're deep, you know, these are deeply personal matters of bodily autonomy, which I think kind of, you know, heightens the, um, right, the stakes of all of this. So let me... Um... Push, I don't know how I feel about this, to be frank, because um, if it wasn't for my general skepticism about, you know, courts creating rights, I'd be all with you on this. But, you know, my overall ideology kind of gives me a pause. Um, to the extent you are advocating for reaffirming some of the old cases involving a right to travel and advocating for kind of a new approach to that to fit these cases— Whatever right we're talking now, I'm not talking about it when there's a constitutional right to court is deemed fundamental, because we don't need the right to travel when we have that. But let's assume we have something that that Illinois says is legal, Oklahoma says it's not. Illinois could make it illegal if they wanted to, like matter you know whatever. But they decided not to. So we're not talking about a con- the fact that something isn't illegal doesn't mean you have a constitutional right to it. So let's let's take the constitutional right analysis out for just for one second. And I leave Oklahoma to do something that's legal in Illinois, but illegal in Oklahoma. The marijuana example is hard because it's illegal everywhere, theoretically, under federal law. So that, we don't even have to pin my, – my question to you is this. That would have to be, I think, classified, that kind of right, to travel to a different state to do something legal in that state that would be illegal in my home state. That's an unenumerated right. There, I mean, I th- if I if I would, I might want to amend the Constitution to have that right, um, but it's not in there. So I take it this means you are generally, theoretically, ideologically, uh, in favor of finding unenumerated rights in the Constitution. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I think one of the things to me though is well, first of all. I don't understand what a you know a privilege or an immunity right. of national citizenship would be if you don't have the ability to leave your state right. um, and avail yourself of right the of of the federalist system that we have. 
um, you know, to me, the but, but the court has tanked that twice, right? I mean, oh yeah. Well, I mean, what, to me, what's core though here is that you know part of part of the whole system is that we have a federal system and we have different. You know, every state is you know sovereign, and we've got laboratories of democracy. All of that to me should you know that all that to me should be available to any citizen. Um, you know, otherwise there's really no point to having national citizenship. Um, you know, if you can't travel freely, I, I, I take, you know, I, I take under, I, I guess I get the, the hesitancy or the skepticism of, you know, unenumerated rights, um, or, you know, digging around for fundamental rights. Um, you know, to me, the thing is, is like, well, actually, let me let me go back to the right to travel sure. in particular, because you did say something that kind of yeah. with the dormant commerce clause that kind of made me <laughs> uh, jittery inside. Um, uh, by the way, I think the dormant the, commerce clause makes all law professors jittery. But go ahead. Yeah, hate it. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, the the thing about it is this is, you know, I um, and maybe this is actually a tangent, so I don't know. But one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is the fact that. Um, you know, the, the Edwards case was a, right was essentially a a commerce clause yeah. decision, right? And I like to me, there's something very wrong <laughs> with talking about people traveling, right? People yeah. traveling and saying that's commerce, right? There's there's a, something else there um, that that's much more valuable and much more important. Um, but but I think so much of this, and again, we can. I'm just going to say it, and then we can move off because we could just talk about this all day. I'm yeah. sure. But like so much of our our juris, or so much of our constitutional doctrine from the late 19th century is just so messed up um, because we basically let the Redeemer Court of the you know of the 1880s strip out all the important things. I think like the right to travel, which are essential to being a national citizen. And we basically said, well, we're going to care much more about it if it's only commerce. But otherwise, you know, no, there's no, you know, there's no duty to rescue. There's no duty for this. And there's got to be state. I, I don't know. There's that's a whole right. No, whole but hold on. Hold on a thought for a second. Because it's, it's not it's yeah. a great point, And it's not just the 1880s. Um, in 1964, as you know, as you know, um, in in the civil rights cases involving the heart of Atlanta Motel, which is two blocks from where I'm sitting right now, as you also know, two blocks from your office, which is next to mine. Um, as late as 1964, the court said that the right of, of people of all races to be uh, to use public accommodations equally is not a really a civil right, but it's a commerce clause right. And Justice Douglas wrote a, a concurring opinion saying. This liberty is much too large to call it commerce, which I think is similar to what you're saying, right? Yeah, I mean, now the, <laughs> the, maybe maybe after I write this article, we'll have to come back, but and and chat about it. But but you know, part of the thing that bothers me so much is, you know, I think folks, anyone who follows me on Twitter, particularly, knows I'm I just I'm obsessed with Reconstruction, you know, <laughs> um, and and and. So much of Reconstruction's failure as a political matter was a consequence of industrialization and the power of capitalists, um, right, in the North in particular. And as soon as Reconstruction didn't work for them and their needs, you know, suddenly we're, we're good, we've had enough. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of really good, you know, you know, evidence out there that in particular stuff that was happening in South Carolina with the black majority legislature, uh, was just really not driving with what people wanted in the North, particularly industrialists and financiers. And so part of what's happening here, I think is, you know, we've crammed everything into the commerce clause because if it's about commerce that we want to protect it and we want to be thoughtful about it and, right. you know, but That's if it's point. rights, we're going to, we're going to subject it to something less. And the Edwards versus California case, you know, and the right to travel is a byproduct of some of these really bad decisions um, that that you know emerge out of the politics of eight, the 1870s and 1880s, um, and we're still living with them, as you said, with with you know the the Heart of Atlanta case. You know, we're still living with these you know the, the kind of trajectory of, of the law today. Um, and I think we're, we're missing something there. Like we're robbing some value out of our constitutional order by claiming that these are, you know, commerce-based, economic-based rights, when in fact they are deeply, you know, much more personal than that. So it's really interesting, Anthony, and I wasn't going to go here, but, you know, this would be a tangent, but I think it's a really important one. You said uh, anyone who knows me on Twitter or follows me on Twitter knows I'm obsessed with the Reconstruction Amendments. 
It's not just you. So just in the last few months, I've been reading Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick, two libertarian originalists who would give Congress much more power to protect civil rights than the Supreme Court has done, which is an amazing thing if one knows Randy's history of federalism. The fact that Randy is advocating giving Congress more power. And he was on my podcast a few weeks ago, and I said, "Is that? I can't believe you're advocating this. And he said, I am. It's where, where the law led me. But it's not just them. Eric Foner wrote a great book. Ilan Werman at Arizona State is writing. All. It's, it's, uh, there are a lot of academics, and not just in law, historians, political scientists, writing about the failure of the court during Reconstruction to give effect to what those amendments were supposed to be about, which leads me to my question. Do you think all of these academics, some of whom are, the, are, are very friendly with, say, Justice Thomas. Like, I mean, I know Justice Thomas loves Randy's work, or at least did into this last book. Um, do, do you think that the, the, the efforts of all of these academics from different political stripes, from elite and non-elite law schools and other schools, will make a difference to the court someday to, to, to get us to, to, to rewrite the awfulness, the way I put it is the court turned the 14th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments mostly from protecting minorities, people of color, the freed slaves, into protecting railroads and, and big business. And that was a huge mistake. Do you think we'll ever correct it? Um, yeah, I do. Oh, good. <laughs> um, okay. Now, I, now, I'll be cynical here okay. a little bit. And I, I think my my inclination is that there are you know, folks who are more on the conservative end of things, you know, who, who might very well think that Congress has more power than, you know, the court has currently said that they do. Um, but then they can assume that the Senate is going to be conservatively bent and right. not act on that ever. So, like, right. you know, like no harm, no foul there, right? right? If you take one position as a matter of constitutional law, football knowing that it's never going to materialize. Um, I, I will know, say I, I don't think that's the case with Randy and Evan because I know them personally. I don't know the rest of it. But. Well, I, I, I would say Evan for sure, right? Because yeah. I've had this conversation yeah. with him. Yeah. But, I, but I do think that you'll, you, you do see some people on the right yeah. who say, well, you know, maybe that was wrong. And, you know, but then they don't, they don't have to actually have to worry about the consequences right. of right. Right, that enlarged power. Right. Um, you know, part, but I, but I, the reason why I raise that is because I don't think if you see change, that's where it's going to come from, right? Because we have, we are, we have been in for the last 40 years, uh, you know, an era of Reaganism and, you know, that's been dominated by uh, conservatives and the court has reflected that. Um, and until you get a kind of reconstructive moment, right, that is akin to the Reagan revolution, the New Deal, uh, right, the, the Republican Party coming into power in, in 1860, Jackson in 1828. Um, until you get kind of a really order-shattering moment like that in American politics, um, you know, where either the court is going to be brought to heel or people are just going to start radically thinking or radically uh, or th will be thinking radically differently, um, right, the court won't reflect that change until it kind of comes into, you know, in vogue in uh, right political circles. I think, um, you know, that we might be seeing that now, or at least the, the seedlings of, of that might be now. Um, just thinking about the way in which millennials and, and Gen Zers uh, think about right law and think about policy and think about uh, social change. I, I think a lot of, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, which has not really gained politically as much as I probably thought it would have if I was looking at summer 2020. Right. Um, I think, but I think that has shaped a lot of people's views. I think a lot of people are very interested in reconstruction, uh, in partial, in part because of that. And and part of what I'm, what I would think, maybe hope, I don't know, um, is that if there's a change, it won't be so much the kind of scholarship we've seen from from a lot of folks in the legal academy. Maybe Eric Foner would be kind of a, yeah. an exception, you know, to this. But I think you'll see it come about because people will take black constitutionalism in Reconstruction seriously, right? So much of our focus on Reconstruction historically has been about what white people have thought about Reconstruction. And of right. course, that's not going to lead you anywhere good, right? That's going to lead you to the civil rights cases, you know, of 1883. It's going to lead you uh, to Crookshank. It's going to lead you to some of the bad cases that we talked about, um, you know, Whereas I think what we need to be doing is thinking about how those folks who were, you know, um, in power, particularly black 
you know, freedmen were, who were in power. I, I would point out South Carolina in particular. Right. Um, Ironically, you know, I think. What, uh, yeah. What would they think? Right. What were they thinking between 1868 when they adopted the state constitution uh, post Reconstruction Acts and until they lost power right in 1876, 1877? Right. Um, that's much more meaningful to me. And I think if you get more and more interest in that kind of you know scholarship, and I think that's the trajectory of things. Of course, I'm biased because that's stuff I'm working on too. Right. Um, you know, but it, but I think that there's going to be a greater desire or a greater interest in people who will be in power in more so in the next 10, 15, 20 years who will take that stuff seriously. And if that's true, the the Supreme Court will eventually reflect that. So that's really interesting. And and you are working on a book dealing with social movements and and the, I assume the effects of social movements on law and vice versa. Uh, Jack Balkin is probably my until I read your book, my favorite author on on this on this subject. I think everything, most of what he says is true. I just hate his label. Living originalism is terrible. But um, so I, let me ask you this, and 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 now we're definitely changing subjects. But I, I think it's a really interesting one. So, for example, Barry Friedman um, at NYU had everyone used to say Barry, and he wrote like a. The book was – I love Barry. I love his book. It was a little too long. But he wrote this huge like 600-page opus on how most of the time the court does follow kind of left-center, right-center politics. Um, and the court doesn't deviate too far and conventional wisdom. Now, it will go from left-center to right-center, but it won't go much beyond that. Um, and that it generally reflects the preferences of the, of the ruling elite, wherever that ruling elite happens to be. You take that idea – you add it to Balkan's notion of social movements causing change. And I guess all of that leads me <laughs> to um, constitutional interpretation. We tend to think of that as originalism or living constitutionalism or pragmatism. I, I have to mention Posner once a, a pod, so that's my one time I'm going to mention him. You know, Posner's pragmatism, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, on the ground, on the planet Earth, in Washington, D.C., don't Outside influences like social movements really count for much more than than even the textualist and the allegedly textualist and originalist justices claim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, here's the thing. So, you know, in the way I approach constitutional law, um, you know, I come from it from a political science kind of mentality. As you said, it's it's. Very, I mean, Jack Balkan is very much in this kind of space. Yes. Um, and and by the know, way, he was my first podcast. Very well, first Jack Balkan. He he came in a pajama shirt. It was fun. Go ahead. There we go. <laughs> I, maybe I should, I, next time I'm gonna I'm gonna try something a little bit more festive. Um, you know, but but you know, in in my area of, of work, we you know call American political development. There's a few things that we take very seriously. One is the idea that ideas matter, right? That big ideas tend to shape and form or inform American politics for decades at a time. Um, and second is that policies produce politics, um, right? We, you know, that, that the sequencing and order and timing of American, you know, politics and American history matters. And that these things all kind of affect one another in, in ways that are that are deeply important for understanding how we get to where we're at. Um, and then, you know, basically it's an idea of path dependence. Um, and so in many ways, this kind of thinking is in concert with what Barry Friedman wrote about in Will of the People. Right. Uh, right. That, that dominant political coalitions really do have, uh, you know, an overwhelming effect on how people think. Um, and in many ways, it reflects what, what Balkan is talking about in this the cyclical nature of constitutional law, um, right? So to me, originalism, that sounds like a nice uh, interpretive method, I, but fine, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's a social movement, right? Which is no different than a social movement that emerged from the New Deal and a form of constitutional interpretation that right, evolved out of that, no different than the constitutional interpretation that emerged um, from the Republican Party's emergence into power uh, or coming into power in 1860 and how that evolved throughout the 1860s and 1870s, right? Uh, you know, for example, we always talk about Lochner as being, you know, the Lochner era, um, you know, and, and how at the turn of the century, Lochner was this like, you know, crazy case that just kind of changed everything and blah, 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 blah. No, like, 
if you understand what was happening in the Republican Party in the 1860s and 1870s, and you see the case law that is emerging, right, like Munn versus Illinois, and you know, on and yeah. on, yeah. you can see that the seeds of Lochner begin, you know, by 1861, 1862, um, and you can draw a, maybe not a straight line, but a pretty good line from that point until right 1936, 1937, and so I, I think right what Barry Friedman, what Jack Balkin are talking about, you know, what Bruce Ackerman is talking about, they're all right. Um, and, and Adam I, and Winkler I think, too. Adam Winkler tra- yeah. draws that line you just t- talked about in his wonderful yeah. book "We the Corporations," I think it's called. And but the thing is, it's it's recurrent, right? It's right. not it's it's not as if right the the free labor ideology of the Republican Party from 1850 ish um, right to to the mid 30s, um, you know that pattern of, of policy development and then how it kind of you know made its way up uh, and was absorbed by law. Right. That wasn't a one off thing. Right. If you look at the Jacksonian era. Right. Then again, with the Republicans, you look at the New Deal era. um, Right. I could tell you why, um, you know, you know, I could tell you why certain cases evolved from the New Deal, just given what the New Deal was about. Right. Like we, we, um, you know, we look we talk about Caroline products all the time. Well, Caroline products, you could, you know, was kind of foreshadowed by many of the speeches of leading Democrats um, right, eight years for the, you know eight just, years. Prior just for the non-lawyers, the Anthony, Carolyn Products was a case. Just for the non-lawyers that up, that up, that upheld a silly little law about milk, but has the most important footnote in Supreme Court history, outlining when the court would exercise more deferential review and less deferential review. It was a watershed moment. I just want non-lawyers to understand what we're talking about. But it, but of course, right? It's a watershed moment that happens, um, you know, in in spring 1938. Right. And if you look at like the month and a half or so between the time that Caroline Products was argued and the decision is handed down, I mean, the, the, the New York Times every day is painted with just terrible news coming out of Europe, right? Um, you know, the Nazis are, are doing awful things and their anti-Semitic policies are really coming, um, you know, to light and people are talking about them. Uh, the Soviets are doing some really terrible things to religious folks. You've got Hungary sliding into liberalism. I mean, parliamentary democracies are falling left and right. Um, and, and all these terrible things that are happening to minority groups um, and the political process are you know really startling and there's people in the united states who are also advocating for this right who, who think that the that democracies are out are outmoded and that that the you know fascism that's taking over europe that's the future um if you see all of that develop then footnote four which says you know we really need to have a judiciary which is much more protective of the political process, which is much more protective of fundamental rights, which is much more protective of laws that target, um, you know, discrete and insular minorities. That kind of makes sense. Like, oh, that's why that little footnote popped up, right, in the spring of 1938. Little, just, little, little footnote it was not, but yes. <laughs> and a little footnote it was not. And yeah. so, you know, I, I, I think that that's one thing that we miss when we talk about constitutional law is, you know, that, that all of the constitutional interpretation, the substance, the, the, you know, the, the trajectory of a constitutional jurisprudence, um, it is not removed from the, the lowbrow politics of the moment. In fact, it is very much a byproduct of them. So it's, that is all so interesting in a lot of different ways, um, which leads me to a personal question for you, which you don't have to answer, but I think you probably will. But before I get to the personal question, there are people who straddle con law and political science, like yourself, and then people like Sandy Levinson, who, who is both, he, he's a legend, and he was, he's both a law professor and a political scientist, and there, and there are many, many others. And I feel like, and this may be my ignorance, I'm always welcomed with open arms by political scientists, and I'm often shunned by law professors because of my views, the court isn't a court, and my legal realist views and all that. But all the political scientists I know who, are, who, who straddle political science and scientists and con law thinking just basically say what you just said uh, beautifully and, and, you, and, and that, that we can't isolate the Supreme Court from what's happening in the political world, not just here, but in abroad. Anthony, I've been teaching Caroline products for 31 years. 
Um, I have never once tied it to what was happening in Nazi Germany, and I will starting next year. So I learned something today from you, and I really appreciate that. Um, I do tie it to a larger culture in America, but I don't tie it to that you know, world. I tie Brown to that culture because we know Brown was a response to Russia criticizing us for all kinds of bad things when we were criticizing Russia. Here's my question. You had a PhD from Georgia well on your way. Why, why law school? Why law? Because why? you sound a little more impassioned <laughs> when we start talking about social movements than when we start talking about originalism for good reason. Um, why, why law? Well, you know, I mean, for example, let, let's look at the, the piece, the Harvard Law Review piece, yeah. right? That's kind of old school doctrinal take, yes. right? Uh, there's an association right to travel, and this is why we should recognize it. Now, yeah. I right, I recognize this goes to the, I think this is the difference. I, right, as, a, as an American political development scholar, you know, what I said, uh, one of the things that we value, right, is ideas mattering, right? And, and which is different than, right, some of the folks in the political science world who try to measure like, you know, small cause and effects, yeah. which is not what we do. We we think about things, right, kind of the longer term trajectory, and we think about how ideas permeate society and, and things like that. So I, I think that, you know, kind of the traditional normative doctrinal arguments do matter. Um, you know, it's not as if they don't. I just recognize that the ones that get rejected, right. <laughs> right, they're rejected because people don't like them on average, right? The majority of, of the of the voting public on average probably thinks that that's a bad idea and that's why it gets rejected. It doesn't mean that the argument should be made. The argument has to be made, um, right, in order to have people, have society, have legislators, have, you know, members uh, of the judiciary, have uh, folks in the executive branch kind of fight, have these fights and, and make these things, um, you know, or, or kind of figure out what they want to accept or what they don't. So I think the normative doctrinal arguments are important to have. Um, and so, you know, I'm willing to do that. I also think that we need to be realistic about how things kind of get reinforced or don't, um, you know, what kinds of doctrine or, you know, even just cases you know, when do cases become kind of canonical and when do they become anti-canon and where, what about the cases that are all in between? I think American political development can shed a lot of light about when precedent matters and when it doesn't or, you know, if it ever matters. Um, you know, and I, and I think the other thing I would say is this, just in terms of like teaching and how I approach class pedagogically, which is, you know, I think that teaching students about the political, social, and economic underpinnings of constitutional law makes them better lawyers because I really don't think that they need on average, um, right, the most robust understanding of every constitutional law case ever decided. They right? don't need you that know, for sure. They don't. But what I think they they gain from having the kind of approach to the, you know, the class that, that I provide is that they, they can see how all decisions that the courts make um, are choices, right? It's nothing is nothing's preordained, right? And so when they are making arguments before a court, they can really see not only the kinds of arguments that were made before, but perhaps try to understand why they were rejected before, and to also get a better sense of where the winds are blowing um, so that they can strategize accordingly for the benefit of, the, of their client or their cause, and to be able to think through those things and, and understand, um, in particular, why certain decisions in history were not made and, you know, determine for themselves whether those were good or not, right? And, and to learn from those, uh, right, learn from those choices and in particular learn from the mistakes that we've made historically. So to me, I don't see, right, I don't see my political science work as being, you know, somehow an, uh, somehow anathema to law or, uh, you know, uh, you know, incongruous with uh, doctrinal, right, traditional doctrinal work, I see them working together, um, you know, but I will say, you know, my research is not going to be overwhelmingly doctrinal, right? Um, because right. that's just not who I am. Right. But that being said, you know, I, I, you know, I love engaging with it. I love talking about it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I could never see myself, I don't think, teaching anywhere else outside of law school as a consequence. Yeah, I, I majored in political science in college, but I knew I had no chance eventually teaching it because I, I'm not quantitative, and I think there's a big quantitative element to it. Um, one, one more question about constitutional law, and then I want to float to one other topic before we finish. 
So a week ago, Monday, I put pen to paper or finger to typewriter, I guess, or finger to computer, and published something that I've been thinking about for 25 years, but never had the guts to publish. And I'm curious what your reaction to it is based on a lot of what you just said. And let's just put our cards on the table. We're both extremely progressive left-wing law professors. But I think we're very different in one key way, and that's what I'm going to get to. So I, I suggested, and I did, it as, I did it as non-dogmatic as I can write. I said, maybe it's time to start a conversation about. That's a very weak way of putting forth the idea, right? Not even should we have a conversation, but is it time to start thinking about having the conversation? That it might be time to disobey the Supreme Court because Congress is not going to do anything. We know this now. If anything, the Supreme Court Reform Commission made things worse by pretending to look at it and then doing nothing of any import. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to pack the court even if you want to. We're not going to add seats even if we want to. All of that's extremely unlikely. And I made a bunch of arguments um, that I've been making for a long time. This is not for me about progressive politics. It's not. Um, I made this argument in 2012. I made it in 2004. Um, are you afraid of that world? Because I'm not. Are you afraid of a world where maybe, let's take this hypo. Let me ask you if you'd be in favor or against this. A year from June, the Supreme Court strikes down all affirmative action, which I think is likely to happen. No longer can public universities use any racial criteria to determine their, their, their class, and no longer can private universities who receive federal money use any racial criteria, which is all private universities, I think, except a couple of religious ones. And the president of University of Virginia makes a very public statement. I'm not following this court decision. I'm just not. Um, this, is the, this is the great state of Virginia. We're a government entity. Uh, we have rights as a, as a state. And my state school is not going to abide by this. I don't, and we're going to have a quota. The hell with it all. We're having a quota next year in violation of a thousand Supreme Court cases. I don't think President Biden sends in the National Guard. I don't. As opposed to Eisenhower in 1957 sending in the National Guard. Would you be in favor of the University of Virginia president doing that? Hmm. <laughs> uh, um, open-minded, I'll say. Okay, fair. So, here, so I think I think I think two things are true. Uh, I should say I'm, I ambushed you with this question because we had talked about uh, what we we're going to discuss, and this wasn't one of it. But go ahead. So I I think I think on one hand, right? I never really sure. Okay, we talk about the rule of law a lot, and yeah. I'm generally not sure what that means. Okay. Uh, except for whatever Paul Gowder has taught me very ably, <laughs> which I appreciate. I love Paul. Uh, Love, love Paul. Yeah. Love Paul's new book. So yeah. you know, we'll plug that. Um, you know, so there is something to me that says, well, the one thing that rule of law does mean is, to some extent, that we ad adhere to authority. Um, you know, however, I also think that one of the downsides of of how law professors and lawyers tend to think is we always want neutral rules for everything, right? What's good for the goose is right. good for the gander. And, um, you know, I also think that, that sometimes we need to recognize that that always doesn't work either, right? That sometimes there are certain causes which are just just enough um, to warrant some form of civil disobedience. Right. You know, but that brings me back to the first point, which is, you know, when do we do that and how do we justify that? Because we might be on the receiving end of that one day. Sure. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure. What I, what I would push back on, and yeah. I think that this is something that I find liberals not to think about critically enough, I think, is, you know, yeah, the last year and a half, two years, Biden and, you know, the Democrats really haven't pushed on the court quite not at all. much. Not at all. Um, you know, other than maybe enhanced rhetoric here and there. But I think that folks need to remember, right, that that it was a good five years or so uh, until FDR got around to being much more aggressive with the Supreme Court, right? right. Like, like a reconstructive moment, a a right, a, a really radical, uh, you know, upending of the status quo takes time to develop, and you know, I think particularly in the, this moment where we want instant gratification, um, you know, we wonder, well, why is why is it happened? I think that there's a case. To potentially be made that the Supreme Court is going to overstep its its ability to kind of be conservative um, and not face massive uh, public opinion backlash. 
I don't know. That might also not pan out. I, I don't know. I think it's a. I think I always raise it to say, I think it's a little too soon to tell. You know, and people will often. You know, people who know me will say I talk about political time a lot, right? right. Political time being right. This idea of like, well, where are we? In these transitional moments in American history, you know, are we in a trans, are we in a transformational moment now? And people ask me this all the time, and I say, well, I don't know, right? I think, you know, time will tell. So there, there's still right. an opportunity, I think, for for the Supreme Court to step in it really badly. Right. Um, and unfortunately, right, it's probably going to mean, you know, guns, abortion, affirmative action, gay rights, like these. These are the kinds of things that are are going to suffer at the at the you know, feet of the court. Oh, guns are guns aren't going to suffer. Guns are going to be very happy. <laughs> well, you know, but 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 you know the I mean. issue, I'm kidding. Right? Yeah. right? But the issue is, is I, yeah. I think really quite polarizing. So, um, you know, so I, I I I don't know. You know, it might be the case that people are going. You know, and, and this is going back to my your original question, yeah. which I've circumvented now. Um, you kind of ducked lawyer, it, but that's okay. Um, but you know, the the last thing I'll say is. One of the hallmarks of a reconstructive moment are people challenging, you know, institutional arrangements as, as they have inherited them. Right. And so one thing we've always believed in as a society on average is that we just adhere to what a court, you know, or the Supreme Court in particular tells us because that's just what the law is. And if if people begin to see that, you know, you know, who's operating behind the veil um, and they get a sense that this is not what they bargained for, you know, maybe maybe you'll get greater calls for institutional rearrangement. Maybe some of that will be resisting in some way, shape or form, you know, the enforcement of court orders. I don't know. But, you know, oftentimes, again, I, I think a lot of this is you know, our, our history has colored our views on this, right? right? Like in the sense of people thumbing their nose at, at court opinions, have generally been the bad guys, right? It's been segregationists, and it's been Andrew Jackson, and it's right. It's been prayer right, in the, school, the prayer in school. Yeah, and so you know nobody wants to nobody wants to join that group, you know, especially if you're a progressive, um, you know. But at the same time, you know, maybe this is a moment where people feel that they do need to engage in some form of civil disobedience in order to bring the court to heel. I want to be clear. Um, I know you know this, but I want to be clear that. My critique here is not partisan. I, I have some partisan critiques like I make, but this is not one of them. I don't want to talk about it now. I just want the audience to understand. My critique has been 30 years in the making. It's nonpartisan. It's that this is a broken institution no democracy should have. I don't care if it's liberal, moderate, conservative, or fascist. No, is, no country should have this kind of Supreme Court with this kind of power. Um, obviously, I'm happier when they do progressive things most of the time than not. But I don't. This is not a. This is not a progressive critique. This is an institutional critique of mine that I've had for a long time, transcending politics. I made this critique in 2012 when we thought Obama would get picks and there'd be a liberal court. So I just want to be clear on that. All right. Um, I have one last question that's sideways to everything we've been discussing. But um, I've had several people on this pod over the last couple of years talking about legal education. Uh, I've had several deans, Blake Morant, former deans, Blake Morant was here, um, Dan Rodriguez was here, a lot of deans, and, and I like talking about legal education. We're almost out of time. I know you have some strong views about law reviews, and I'm will. I'm wondering if you. We both went to a symposium once to talk about this. Do, do you have? You want to rant for a couple minutes about law reviews, or express your opinions about law reviews? Because I'm curious. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I get them, and I don't at all. I mean, <laughs> um, you know. So I, I, I have. I think I've kind of come to the position where I loathe the process, but love the people. Okay. Um, in the sense of like. You know, I think getting to work with law students and law review editors is generally pretty rewarding. I think it's I don't think it's a bad thing for them. I think on average, a lot of the work that, you know, the editing that's been done for me has been superb. And I've I've had really good experiences on the whole. But, you know, the way we select them is just absurd. Um, Right. Not no blind review. And then we we abuse the labor of certain students because we're trying to jockey up the you know the hierarchy in yeah. order to you know get a better placement. And then you know someone will get a placement at you know a top ten school and we'll say, oh congratulations, what's what what a wonderful placement. But it was just as random as the person who got right a placement at school number thirty five or school number fifty on you know often you know. So you know we we kind of we all recognize that there's a randomness to it and there's an inequality to it and it's not 
It's not intellectual in the selection process whatsoever. Um, and, you know, of course, there's an issue, I think, that people raise with the fact that they're second year law students. Um, I'm a little less, you know, I'm a little less, you know, peeved by that. I think there's some value in, you know, not having academics gatekeep because oftentimes, you know, people are self-interested gatekeepers. Yes. Um, I've seen this in peer review, yes. which is not always great either. So yes. I'm okay with law review editors generally selecting it. I don't love the, the the lack of blind review at all. And I definitely don't like this quasi peer review, which is basically, you know, I don't know what it is because right. it's not helpful if you don't get the notes uh, or if there's not a re, you know, uh, revise and resubmit process. But, um, you know, I, I think my, my bottom line actually would be I would much rather prefer that law reviews have just a symposia model. Yes, I've been um, saying that for a know, long time. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and they can and they can dictate the topic that they're interested yeah. in yep. and then have a call a call for papers. Yep. And you know, I think that's a much better way of, you know, not abusing, using or, you know, wasting their labor, our labor, right? Because it's not cost free for us to do the process. You, you don't need things like Scholastica and I mean and then, you know, if you want to write outside of the symposia space, um, you know, maybe there's a way we can accommodate for that. Or you just write books or you do peer review. Right. Um, you know, I, I think there's a way that we can accommodate the current system because I do think there's a pedagogical value that students derive from working with law professors. Um, but, you know, whatever can be said, you know, for that, that the system as it is currently set up, I think does a lot of harm to a lot of folks and, and isn't really healthy um, for, for the academy. My wild and crazy idea about this that I've never said publicly, you brought it out of me, um, is this, and I know it's unrealistic, but one thing you said, which is we all agree that the placements are random and, and kind of lottery-like, and I, I, I know that's true. I'll never forget um, Jay Bybee, author of The Torture Memo, who is now Judge Jay Bybee, um, whole different story, um, was at LSU as a professor once and sent out, and those are back, this is pre-internet days, and sent out about 50 copies of an article, got 49 rejections, and Yale took it, you know? And when evaluating his success in that, it was like, well, that's the most successful thing other than maybe Harvard. That's the most successful thing you can do. 49 other schools rejected it. It's a weird system. But more importantly, both promotion and tenure committees and hiring committees talk the talk that we all know it's random. You just said that. You said that. We all know it's random. We all know it's a lottery. Um, yet, where you place articles will matter uh, at elite schools in terms of getting tenure and definitely getting hired. My idea is some kind of norm that as long as we have this system, tenure review committees and hiring committees aren't allowed to know where an article is placed. <laughs> they have to just send it to other, we do it anyway, send, it, send the articles to experts in the field and see what they think of them, which I know has some problems, but less problems than second-year students deciding it, and just go by the quality of the piece as told by experts in that area of the law. That would lower the stakes a lot of this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, there's a couple, I mean, there's other processes where we can also either make the system work more like we think it does, yeah. right? So there's always the, you know, I always have, and I, other people have brought this up too, right? Like like the med school matching, right? Like yes. I rank these schools one through a hundred and, <laughs> and, you know, and the, 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 you know, the highest ranked school, uh, you know, that I selected that wants me, they get it. And that's <laughs> how we, you know, match. Yes. Or, you know, you just accept the first offer, right? That's yes. it. Uh, in which case we reduce, you know, some of this excess, you know, nonsense. Yes. But, you know, I, you know, just briefly kind of, you know, piggyback off what you said. And I've talked about this in the Loyola Law Review piece that I wrote for the Loyola Conference on Law Review. Called, by the way, Picking Spinach. You had the best titles of anybody I've ever met. Go ahead. <laughs> Picking Spinach. I, act, I think I talk about it in the article. Um, maybe. But my very first piece, which was like a 30-page, you know, piece, which I was just trying to get while I was out of grad school, um, and I farmed it out to a bunch of law reviews, maybe a hundred, I don't, I don't remember, but probably up to a hundred, got rejected from every law school except for Yale Law Journal. <laughs> I mean, like there's no, you know, and then everybody would, you know, when, when I first got the acceptance from Yale, 
um, you know, everyone said, wow, what a prime placement. Right. And of course it is. And it, it was very much career changing for me because it was Yale Log Journal um, and got a lot of, you know, views, hits, reads, whatever. But, you know, if the system, and I'm very grateful to them. Thank you, yes. Yale. Yes. Um, we we love know, Yale Log Journal. Grateful. Thank you, Yale. <laughs> thank you. Please take more of my stuff. Happy to work with you again. But, but if the system worked as we said it would, then why did I get 99 rejections right. in right. one Yale? Exactly. Like, and that's it, right. That's the exact same story. It yeah. doesn't. And I, I've, I've heard that from other people yeah. before or, you know, they'll get rejections from 100 schools, resubmit six months later to a different board. And they're at a top five law, yes. law journal with a publication offer. So yes. the system is just so, so deeply random that, um, you know, but yet we don't treat it like that in, in practice. Yes. Um, yeah. that, that we really need to kind of rethink this in, in some way. And I will leave with this thought, which is, you know, it's up to us because the institutional um, inertia is not in, you know, not in favor of law review editors doing this since they, right, they're, they're turning over their board every yes, year. Yes. You know, they're not, they're not sticking around and, and they, and they don't see the pathologies in the same way that we do either. So, you know, this is really going to have to be something that law professors in the legal academy have to address. Uh, otherwise, it'll just never get done. I think that's a great answer. We we talk the talk of it doesn't matter where it's published, but we don't walk the walk of that. I mean, and that's and that's sad because where it gets published is, I think, random to a great degree. Anthony, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I could talk to you. I do talk to you all the time, so this is. But talking to you on camera is kind of more fun, even than <laughs> talking to you in person. Well, I'm, I'm just glad that there are people outside of the College of Law who will get to see what it's like to, yeah. you know, be on be on the same floor with you and you know have these conversations <laughs> randomly all the time. So, so <laughs> but, it's good to it's good to have people invited into our world, right? I, that, I, I hope so. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. But thank you so much <laughs> for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, glad glad to be here.